Well, to a certain generation of us, coming of age in the 60s and 70s, it all seemed pretty simple. Come together. Make love, not war. Give peace a chance. Desegregate the schools. Disarm the nuclear warheads. Put the Arabs and Israelis in a room and let them talk it out. I mean, it's what the world wants, right? Peace, love, and understanding. It shouldn't be that hard. Come on, people, now smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. And we believed it was possible. We were going to see it in our lifetime. In fact, we were going to make it happen. Well, the last of the baby boomers turned 50 this year. There we go. <laughs> the year they were born, 1964, was a year that was bright with promise. President Johnson declared war on poverty. A bipartisan Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. Martin Luther King Jr. won the Nobel Peace Prize. The Beatles came to America with playful spirit and songs of love. The Saturn I rocket uh, achieved Earth orbit, opening up the frontier of space. Diet Pepsi, the Ford Mustang, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer all made their debut in 1964. The future was bright with the psychedelic color of possibility. That was 50 years ago. And that dream has never quite materialized. Now, we've seen signs of progress. The Berlin Wall came down. Apartheid was dismantled. There's an international space station in orbit. An African-American president. An Arab Spring. Most of these were grassroots kinds of movements. From, from, from a farm in Woodstock to, uh, to the streets of Berlin to the square at Tiananmen, remarkable things can happen when people come together. Powerful things, transformative things happen. But we can't seem to make them stick. We can come together, but we can't keep it together. The Russians are on the move again. The Israelis and the Palestinians are still at it. Racial hostility breaks out in Ferguson, Missouri, of all places. And the nuclear threat still hangs over our heads. That psychedelic future has yet to materialize. Our world, our nation, our communities are as divided and sometimes as dangerous as ever. And what's true on a global scale is also true on a very personal level. In spite of all our advances in science and education and technology, in spite of social networking and the World Wide Web, in spite of all the songs and movies and books and plays that have been written about love and peace and understanding, people are as lonely and as isolated as ever. One in four Americans say they have no one to talk to about their joys and sorrows. One in every two Americans says that outside of their family, there's no one they can turn to in a time of trouble. The fastest growing category in the U.S. Census is the category called unrelated individuals. More people living alone than ever before. Families have 60% fewer picnics 
and 40% fewer family dinners than they did a generation ago. And while social networking has widened our web of relationships, many would say it has weakened them as well. We've exchanged uh, tweets and texts for real conversation. We send each other selfies instead of looking each other in the eye. And unfortunately, this, this superficiality, this disconnectedness too often finds its way into the church as well. The most common reason people have for leaving a church isn't that they don't like the music or they don't like the teaching or the kids' program is no good. It's because they didn't find connections. They never felt like they belonged, and so they just drifted away. And finding a connection can be a challenge in any church, but it's especially challenging in a larger church. I mean, here we are today, one church, meeting in four different places. I mean, we're not even in the same room with each other for crying out loud. How do you even know if you even like the people who are part of this church? <laughs> How do I know you're not sleeping in the middle of this sermon? <laughs> Some of you are going to watch this in your PJs at home later in the week. I mean, where's the community in that? So all this to say, connectedness, community can be very challenging especially in larger churches, but it can happen. In fact, it has to happen for the church to be the church. And so this year here at Grace Chapel, we are setting our sights on community. We want to come together in new, fresh, closer ways to discover the joy and power of true community. Now, it's not the first time we've talked about this or gone after it. We've done it several times over the years, and we've gotten better and better each time. But as we continue to grow, as we add campuses, as we try to join hands with other churches to reach our city and the world, we feel like we have a lot more to learn about community and a lot to get better at. So that's where we're headed this year. It certainly won't be the only thing we'll talk about. We'll cover lots of things this year. But it will be the primary focus of our teaching and our programming and our life and prayer together. Not just relationships in the church, but your relationships at home and with your extended family, in your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, the, the world at large. So we're going to begin this teaching journey in the book of Philippians. It is perhaps the warmest, most relational letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And it is a literary and pastoral masterpiece, especially the opening 11 verses. And so that's how we've kind of brought our big Bible back here on the platform to try to help you appreciate visually the, the masterpiece of this, these opening lines. So you can follow along in your scriptures or on the screen and here on the, on the big Bible as well. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure we all remember learning how to write letters in grade school. Business form, personal form, greetings, salutation, all those sorts of things. Well, they had standard formats for letters in the ancient world as well. And Paul pretty much follows that ancient format. 
But with skill and grace and artistry, he lifts that form to whole new levels of intimacy and impact. And I want to show you what I mean. Let's take a look at those, these first few words here. Paul and Timothy. Now, in the ancient world, it was common to begin a letter by the author identifying themselves, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Have you, have you ever jumped down to the end of an email to find out who it's actually from? So they would tell you up front in the ancient world, and so that's what Paul does. But notice the way he begins this letter, Paul and Timothy. Timothy was his protege. You know what Paul's telling us? From the get-go, he's telling us this letter is written in community. It's not only about community, it's written in community. Two people in partnership together. Paul and Timothy, servants. Now, that's an interesting choice of words. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't use the word apostle, which he uses in many of the other greetings in his letters, but here he leaves it out. Now, a servant, a slave in those days had no status whatsoever. This is like posting the word loser on your Facebook page, right there. <laughs> Why does he do that? Because later on in this letter, he's going to talk to us about humility and servanthood and thinking of others better than themselves, ourselves. And so he begins and setting, sets the example for us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now again, none of these are throwaway lines here. Paul's telling us right from the beginning, not only that, that he finds his identity in relationship with Christ, but that he and Timothy are in relationship also because of Christ. It is Christ who brings them together. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, don't overlook this little word here, all, because it's going to show up a lot. To all God's holy people, all God's saints. He wants every believer in that church in Philippi to know that he's thinking about them. He's not just writing to the overseers and the deacons. He's thinking about all of them as he writes this letter. And then he uses this together word. They're all together with these leaders. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who brings them together in community. Now let's look at these two words. He uses two words, grace and peace. Now grace is kind of a vertically oriented word. It speaks to us about God's undeserved goodness to us. But Paul adds another word, peace, and that's kind of a horizontal dynamic that speaks about shalom with one another, with the world, with creation itself. And then finally, in this little opening section, I want you to notice again the word and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's telling us? God himself is in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So this is a letter about community from a community to a community made possible by a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul is a genius. He's also inspired, which helps. Okay. 
Now, let's just pause for a moment before we get to the next paragraph. Let's remind ourselves that what was true of Paul and Timothy and the church in Philippi is true of us here this morning as well. Whether you are in Wilmington or Watertown or Lexington or East Lexington, we are together this morning because of Christ. He's, he's the reason we are together. Now, technology helps, but if not for Jesus Christ, probably none of us would be in a room with one another this morning. We, we, we live in different parts of town. We come from different walks of life. We work in different industries. We come from different ethnic and religious uh, kinds of backgrounds. Many of us have very little in common. What brings us together is our interest in our commitment to Jesus Christ. We have someone or something in common. And that's how communities are formed. They're formed around something or someone or someplace. What that means is that you, whoever you are, wherever you are, you are a part of this community. Even if it's your first time here, even if you're new, even if you're still checking out Christianity, the fact that you're here this morning because of your interest in or commitment to or skepticism about Jesus makes you part of this community. Let's go to the next paragraph. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, once again, Paul uses the all word twice. In all my prayers for all of you. Paul doesn't want them to miss this. As he prays for them, as he thinks about this church, he wants them to know that their names and faces are scrolling across the screen of his imagination. And when that happens, you know what it does for him? It brings him joy. Now, don't miss that word joy because it's going to show up, I think, 14 times in this letter. It's a major theme of Philippians, and the major reason for Paul's joy is his relationship with Christ and with these believers. And then he uses this word, partnership. Remember, there are no throwaway words here. This is the word that you sometimes hear in church, the Greek word koinonia. We often translate it fellowship. Most commentators agree that's a stronger use of the word here. It's more active. It's more participatory. These people aren't just hanging out together. They're doing something together. They're not just sharing the faith in the gospel. They're sharing the work of the gospel. And they've been doing that from the very first day. Now, some of you will remember that first day in Philippi. We talked about it last year. That was the day Paul and his companions arrived in Philippi, and they found a small group of women praying outside the city. And that day, Lydia and her household became followers of Jesus Christ, and the church of Jesus Christ was planted in Philippi that day. And it's been growing ever since that day. I want to call your attention to, to this word, the good work. He's been doing a good work in you. Now, what is that good work? Now, I've always kind of read that good work as 
God's work of salvation in my life, of forgiving me and setting me free. And surely it is about that. But I was reminded of something this time around. This word you is plural. It's yous. <laughs> you guys, y'all, that's who it is. Paul's saying this good work isn't just in you and you and you. It's in all of you all together. This work of raising up a vibrant community that will experience the gospel and extend it to Philippi and the rest of the Roman Empire. And that work continues. It's not done yet. And once again, I don't want to miss the numbers of times that he talks about Christ Jesus because Christ is the one who makes it possible. Now again, let's pause for a moment. Let's kind of remind ourselves what was happening in Philippi a couple thousand years ago has been happening here in Lexington for the past 60-some years. Ever since God began a good work here in this growing suburb of Boston in the post-war post boom years, the first day of the church in Lexington, there were four couples gathered in a living room down the road. Today, this day, there will be over 4,000 people gathered for worship in four locations across greater Boston. And that work from the very beginning has been about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about living, receiving, and sharing that good news with the world around us. And as Paul says, that good work is not done yet. He's going to keep on doing that good work until Christ returns and brings everything to a close. And if you're here today, you are part of that story. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe it's your only time. But you may be a part of the story of the next chapter that God is writing here at Grace. Let's keep going. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Two more times he uses the all word. I feel this way about all of you and how I long for all of you. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, slave, master, rich, poor, Every single one of them, they're all on his mind, in his heart, in his prayers. He uses that word all seven times in this passage. And he talks about his chains. Don't miss the fact that Paul is a prisoner as he writes these words. And he's a prisoner because he's been preaching this good news. Now the Philippians knew all about that because remember what happened when Paul was in Philippi? He got thrown in jail until an earthquake came and broke him out. The Philippians remember that. And Paul said, you know what? You, you Philippians, you stood by me in that imprisonment and he sensed that they were standing by him this time around too. All of you share in God's grace with me. And again he says, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is getting downright mushy here. Let's pause again. Is this how you feel about people at Grace? People sitting around you this morning? People you bump into in the hallway and the parking lot? Do you have them in your heart? As their names and faces come before your mind, does it bring you joy? 
Do you feel affection for them? Now, some of you do, I'm sure. Many of you, I hope. Some of you have been partners in the work here for a long, long time. Not quite since the first day, but just about. And I know how deep those relationships and ties go. Some of you have been on mission trips together to challenging places in the world. Some of you have been in a Bible study group for years and years together. Some of you have raised your children together here through Kids Town and youth group. Some of you have gone off to summer camp together. And yes, you have each other in your hearts. And it's good. It's a good, Paul says, it's right to feel this way. It's good to feel love and affection and joy for people. That's what God made us for. But I know some of you probably don't feel quite that way about people at Grace. Maybe you recognize some names and faces and you can chatter with each other on the way in and the way out. But in terms of real connection, you just haven't had any. Now, now maybe you're still nowhere and finding your way. That's okay. It can take a little while. Maybe you've never really made the effort to go any deeper in relationship with people. Or maybe you have made the effort and it has not gone well. Whatever, whoever, I want you to know, our vision this year is that every single person, every one of you will have an opportunity to get closer to people in this community here at Grace Chapel. We're going to do everything we can to help that happen. We're going to teach about it. We're going to create opportunities for it. We're going to design systems to help it happen. We're going to challenge you, invite you, pray for you, bug you, whatever it takes for you to give relationships a try here at Grace. And we want that to happen in your own campus, across campuses, and even around the city with other churches and believers here. That's not only our vision, that's our prayer. And that leads to our final verses, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Notice the first thing Paul prays for here. It's not faith, it's not knowledge, it's not power. It's love. The first thing Paul prays for, because Paul understands that without love, knowledge, faith, power are just sounding gongs and clanging cymbals, as he'll tell us in another letter. Love is what we need from one another. And love is what the world needs from us. They need to see our love for them and each other. They need to feel our love for them. And until they do, all the preaching and the posturing and the protesting is not going to make a whit of difference in this world in which we live. It begins with love. And so that's what Paul prays for. And then look, he prays that this love might abound. What a great word. Just explode and expand. He prays it's going to happen more and more. Now, it's pretty clear from this letter. These folks already know some things about love. They love each other. They love Paul. Paul loves them. But he's not satisfied. He wants more and more and more of this kind of love for one another. And he wants it for us as well. And once again, don't want to miss the fact that this still is all happening because of and around and through Jesus Christ. 
I think it's seven times he mentions Christ in this letter because he is the center of our community. This prayer, these opening lines are so well-crafted that Paul sets up his three primary concerns in this letter. He's going to talk about them. The unity of the church, their relationships, their, um, their progress in the faith, and thirdly, the advance of the gospel in Philippi and the world. Those three themes. And I find that very interesting, and let me tell you why. One day last, uh, last fall, I took a trip down to New York City for something called Movement Day. I was also there to grab a slice of pizza and some bagels, but I went to Movement Day as well. It was a gathering of church leaders from major cities across the country. New York, Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> sort of leading cities across the country, okay? And we came together to discover how churches could come together to reach their cities. So in one of the breakout sessions, a group of churches from Houston were presenting their vision, telling their story. And, and, and as they told their story, they kind of drew it up on a little marker board. And it, it so struck me that I want to kind of recreate it for you for a moment. They said this, this vision for reaching their city began with a, a commitment to radical obedience. They determined they were going to call their churches and their church members, Christians in the city of Houston, to radical obedience, to living out their faith in their jobs and workplaces and communities. And they got off to a great start. But they quickly discovered they couldn't sustain it unless they were also helping people grow in their faith and be strengthened in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they added a commitment to spiritual formation, helping people to grow spiritually. And they were convinced that these two things, evangelism and discipleship, would be a one-two punch that would transform the city of Houston. But they discovered something was missing. What they, they needed a third thing. They needed community. They discovered that without community, they didn't have courage to be radically obedient. And without community, they couldn't really grow spiritually. And so they added authentic community. When they got those three things happening, now they began to get some traction. So as I, as I sat there and listened to them tell that story and watched them sketch it on the blackboard, I, I realized that we'd been pursuing those same things here at Grace in recent years. Anybody remember what our theme was for last year? Yeah, okay. <laughs> on mission. On mission. That sound familiar? Yeah, okay. That's what we talked about last year. It goes with radical obedience. All right. Two years ago. En Christo, in Christ, okay? We spent a whole year thinking about finding our identity and character and spiritual formation in Christ. We focused on that. And now this year, we're focusing on community and an emphasis that we're going to call all together. So the same three dynamics that Paul talks about are the same three that's at work in the city of Houston and the same three that we're pursuing here at Grace. In fact, we landed on these three things a few years ago when we did our New Day of Grace vision, if you were here for that. And if you remember, it was a vision for going deeper, reaching wider, and getting closer. The same three things we were committed to back then. And it was that new day of grace vision that gave birth to everything that we see now. The four campuses, uh, the revitalized life here in, in Lexington through Plug-In and all those other things and our partnerships around the city. 
Now, I realize this is getting pretty nerdy right here, and I'm probably the only one who thinks this is cool, but hang with me for just one more minute, okay? We have identified six strategic steps we hope everyone at Grace Chapel will take on their spiritual journey. And they coincide with these three things. In terms of spiritual formation in Christ, we have two things we hope everyone does. Worship weekly. Whatever campus you're at, worship weekly. And then secondly, engage the Bible. Engage it at home personally and take advantage of the courses and things that we offer here at Grace to go deeper in the Scripture. Those two things. In terms of community, two things. One, join a life community. Find connections somewhere at Grace. Life communities are the best, but you can also find it in some of the larger groups, Fusion, Gravity, Fire, Maps, any of the other weirdly named things we have around here. Join one of those, okay? And then, in terms of reaching wider, two things. Bring a friend. Develop relationships with people that you can invite to come hear more about the Christian faith. And secondly, live on mission. Go off to work and school and neighborhood every day to be about God's work in the world. Those six things. And you know what? If we did, if everybody at Grace did those six things, we couldn't add campuses quick enough to accommodate all the people God would bring who would want to be part of a community like that. And the whole thing is centered around one thing. It's centered around the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his person and his work in this world. So that's it, friends. That's the elevator pitch. Someone puts a gun to your head and said, hey, what's Grace Chapel all about? You tell them this, okay? <laughs> Deeper, closer, wider. In Christ, on mission, all together. Draw it on a napkin, whatever. That's it. And while we're always about those three things, this year in particular, we're about community. And our first lesson is that true community happens when we come together around something or someone greater than ourselves. And that someone, that something is Jesus Christ and his gospel work. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to give our campus pastors a chance to just share a few minutes about what's going to happen on each campus, and we'll be switching off camera so you get to hear from each of them in a minute. But let me finish with just a personal word. 30 years ago today, I preached my first Vision Sunday sermon as a pastor. Now, I didn't call it that back then, but that's what it was. I was just beginning my first year as a pastor at a little church just outside New York City. There were 60 of us gathered in kind of a one-room schoolhouse kind of a building. I was 27 years old. There were actually three of us on staff, me, myself, and I. <laughs> and, and none of us knew what we were doing, okay? <laughs> we had three leaders, three deacons, one of whom was an elderly gentleman who occasionally fell asleep in our meetings. But you know what? One day at a time, one Sunday after another, one season and year after another, we set about the work of the gospel. Going deeper, getting closer, reaching wider. I didn't have those words to use back then, but that's what we were doing. And over the course of 16 years, God did a good work in our lives and in that church and in that community. And he is still doing a good work there. That church is larger now than when I left it. They have two campuses and they're just finishing another building project. God is building his church. 
14 years ago, in September of 2000, I preached my first Vision Sunday message here at Grace Chapel. I was just beginning. I was, 30, I was 43 years old and had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> at least in a church this size. But fortunately, I had a staff to lean on. And you know what my text was that first Sunday here at Grace? Philippians chapter 1. Discovering the joy of authentic Christianity. And for 14 years now, that's what we've been doing. One day at a time, one week at a time, one season and challenge and opportunity at a time. And I think we would all agree, God has done more than any of us could have asked or imagined in these 14 years. But you know what? God's not done. This good work that he began 60-some years ago, he's going to continue that work more and more and more until he decides we're done. 30 years a pastor. And I love the local church more today than ever before. I, I know how Paul feels when he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Because when I pray for this church, your names, your faces scroll across the screen of my imagination and they bring me joy along with the names and faces of people from a half a dozen other congregations I've been blessed to be part of over the years. And I feel like the richest person in the world for all these relationships. And you know what? Amen. The really great thing is that you don't have to be a pastor to have that kind of richness in your life. You can find that kind of joy and love and connection by entering into the life of a community in the local church God calls you to. So my prayer for every one of you is that you this year might get a taste of this kind of love and joy and power that comes with true community. So at this point, I'm going to hand off for a moment to our campus pastors. Now, yes, we're going to run a few minutes late this morning because we also want to do communion. So just so you know, we'll be a few minutes later than usual, but I hope you'll hang with us. So before you hear from campus pastors, uh, just turn your attention to the screens for a moment. I've been looking for connection my whole life. The people I meet, they're nice people. We have cookouts and go for drinks. We talk about the weather, about school, about sports. Even my kids and their kids are friends, but really our friendships are pretty shallow. I don't share my deepest fears, the things that hurt, what I'm really excited about. We keep it kind of surface. Sometimes I wonder if this is it, or if I just haven't met the right people. But sometimes I wonder, what if there's something more? What if relationships are meant to be deeper? What if friendships aren't supposed to just feel good? What if there were a place where we found powerful connection, true community? What if there were people who stuck with me through my job loss? My divorce? My struggles? My mistakes? What if there were people who didn't care that I'm single? Older? Childless? An immigrant? What if I belonged? What if someone needed me? What if a whole group of people loved each other even on days when they didn't get along? What if we were the kind of people who walked together through thick and thin? What if we looked to serve more than to be served? What if we weren't afraid to share our true selves? What if we came together around something bigger than us, something that made a difference? 
What if we took the chance that we could become that kind of community? What if we is us?